Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections. I had the great privilege of never having a man formally teach me preaching when I was a Master's of Divinity student. I had the great Sister Joan Delaplane and Adrian Dominican, who was the first Catholic woman, I think, to be president of the American Academy of Homileticians. And I also had Servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman, at the Institute for Black Catholic Studies in Xavier University in New Orleans, the other professor of preaching. And what both of these great women stressed is you have the privilege each and every Sunday of standing before the people of God. And they would make it personal. they say, we don't get that privilege easily. We have to look for venues or for opportunities. And so never step into that preaching moment unprepared. Welcome to Preach, a podcast from America Media on the art of Catholic preaching. I'm your host, Ricardo De Silva, a Jesuit priest from South Africa, associate editor at America Media, and also an associate pastor at the Church of St. Francis Xavier in New York. In each episode, we take you into the minds and hearts of some of the finest preachers in the Catholic Church. We listen to their homilies, learn what makes them great, and draw inspiration to keep preaching the good news. This week on Preach, we are joined by Manuel Williams. Manuel is a resurrectionist priest who has been pastor of Resurrection Catholic Church in Montgomery, Alabama for 33 years. Throughout this time, he has also served as director of Resurrection Catholic Missions of the South, preaching revivals and missions throughout the U.S., focusing on African-American Catholic spirituality and history. In 2021, he co-taught a course on anti-racism preaching at the Aquinas Institute of Theology where he is also presently pursuing doctoral studies in preaching. Manuel, welcome to Preach. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's a joy to have you. We have a very dear mutual friend in Brian Massingale, and he suggested that we had to get you on Preach. So I'm glad it's finally happened. Indeed, a beloved scholar. <laughs> so you're preaching for us on the 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Year A. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the readings that you're focusing your homily on? These readings for the 25th Sunday are, at least in the gospel, a continuation of these marvelous parables of the kingdom that Jesus tells in this chapter and preceding. And so in many ways, it's fascinating because I've always been intrigued by parables, always been intrigued by the task of having to preach them, because as some of those preaching scholars like Fred Craddock and others say the parables basically preach themselves. And so when we mount a pulpit to reflect on them, the task in some ways is intriguing and in other ways is Herculean. But I think given so many factors in the life of this local community and in our country and in the church broadly, these parables might have some particular insights for us. And my approach always is to think, what does this text say about where we are as a people right now? 
both my local community, both me as a believer, and maybe even macro issues in terms of the country or the church. And so I think they're very rich in being able perhaps to offer some insights into all of those situations. Talking about your local community, tell us about the community in Montgomery, Alabama, where you've been the pastor for so many years. It's been an interesting journey, a blessed journey. This is the same church I was baptized in, the church I was confirmed in, the church I was ordained in. And if I stay here much longer, it'll be the church I'm buried from. And it is a predominantly African-American community that has grown more diverse, especially in the last 10 to 12 years. It's a community where I'd say perhaps as many as maybe 50 or 60% of the folks who are members are from very ecumenical families. They are either converts to Catholicism through our RCI or other programs, or they are in familial situations where a spouse or children or parents belong to other ecclesial communities other than Roman Catholic. And so that provides a challenge, but it also provides a richness and an example of diversity, I think, that certainly has influenced my preaching and certainly has influenced the way that we do pastoral ministry here at Resurrection. So when preaching to this community, what is the most important thing for you that needs to come across in your preaching? I think the most important thing is to know that I have struggled with these texts and I have tried to discern some application of these sacred texts to our situations. And I want them to feel like the Gospels are relevant, that they speak to our lives, that they speak to the situations that we find ourselves in. In the Sunday immediately following the Uvalde massacre in Buffalo, I kind of went off script in terms of not formally beginning the homily, but saying to my chagrin and to my deep sadness, I bet you, and I'm addressing the congregation, that in 90% of the pulpits in Catholic communities across this country, you will not hear one word about what happened yesterday in Buffalo. And that is a scandal. It's a scandal to the text. It's a scandal to the church. It's a scandal to us as believers. And so I guess my main modus operandi these last 33 years has been to make these texts relevant and to show how they speak to us and can offer solace, challenge, correction, inspiration, whatever. Thank you. I look forward to hearing what you have to offer us in this homily about, you know, which insights the parables have for us from the readings we will hear this Sunday. We will now hear Manuel Williams's homily for the 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Year A, especially recorded for Preach. In case you hadn't noticed, life isn't fair. Now, of course, that's not news to any of us beyond nursery school age. Very early in life, we learn life is not always fair. A younger sibling seems to get special privileges that we didn't get. Sometimes veteran employees in a company or an institution get shoved out of their place by young hotshots who come into that community. Sometimes retired professional athletes see and feel the unfairness when they notice current stars signing contracts for millions of dollars, more money that they make in a year than these athletes have ever made in their whole careers. Life just isn't fair. Sometimes people watch what they eat, they exercise regularly, they refrain from smoking, and they still get cancer. 
while someone else does just the opposite and enjoys good and robust health. Life isn't fair. Sometimes the well-to-do win the big lotteries, while hundreds of working class people with modest means purchase tickets every week and never get even a single number. Sometimes the good do die young and the scoundrel lives to be a hundred. Sometimes the honest and the upright lose their jobs or their businesses while the cheats and the liars seem to make a met. Sometimes hard work doesn't pay off. Sometimes the innocent are convicted and the guilty go free. Sisters and brothers, you and I know from our own experience that life just isn't fair. And we have our ways of coping with this unfairness. One way we sometimes handle it, especially for those of us who dare to call ourselves Christians, is we always try and see the positive side to look for the cloud's proverbial silver lining. We all either know people like this or know times when we've tried to deal with unfairness in this way. No matter what happens, surely something good can come out of this. Let's look at the sunny side. These folks, when you and I are them, are like the little girl who loved baseball. And one day she was in her backyard practicing her hitting and her proud daddy was watching from an open window. Uh, She threw the ball in the air, she swung the bat and she missed. And she said, strike one, I'm a good hitter. She threw the ball in the air again. She swung the bat and she missed. Strike two, I'm a great hitter, she declared. She threw the ball in the air a third time. She swung and she missed. And she screamed, wow, I'm a really good pitcher, a really good pitcher. That's one way to deal with the unfairness of life, to seek the good, to think positively. But the sad reality is sooner or later, we're hit again with another one of those glaring instances of unfairness. But there's another way we deal with the unfairness. Sometimes we confront it head on. We try and reverse the unfairness. We try and execute our notion of human justice. We're like the man of small stature, a truck driver who parked his truck one day at a highway diner, went in to grab himself some lunch. And before he could eat his food, three burly motorcyclists came in and they immediately started to abuse the man, picking on him. He's outnumbered. They took his food. They laughed in his face. The truck driver endured the abuse, got up, never said a word, paid for his food and walked out of the diner. One of the cyclists then remarked to the waitress, boy, he wasn't much of a man, was he? And the waitress replied, "Uh, no, I guess not. But he ain't much of a truck driver either, she said, pointing out of the window. He just ran over three motorcycles. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, when faced with the unfairness of life, we confront it or its agents. That's exactly what the workers did in the parable Jesus tells us in today's gospel passage. You're not fair, they say to the vineyard owner. How can you give these Johnny and Jane come lately the same wage you gave us who worked all day in the burning heat? Why are you making them equal to us? It's not fair because we worked hard. We deserve more than the others. Perhaps I'm speaking only for myself this morning, but I understand their point. I understand their anger. I understand their frustration at the injustice of it all. Doesn't our church and our world operate with specific standards of human justice? When you go into a department store, don't they fawn over you more if you spend $500 than if you spend only 50? 
in some of our educational institutions. People with tenure can't be moved, can't be changed, can't be relieved of their duties. In most of our businesses, the longer you work, the more privileges you get, more pay, bigger office, more responsibility. And is there a pastor, a minister, who wouldn't honestly admit the temptation to attend less quickly to those members we rarely see or to the ones who don't contribute? So you see, I understand why the folks who carried the burden in the heat of the day were a little perturbed with the master of the vineyard. What he did was not fair. But brothers and sisters, there's good news in this parable for us. Our Bible is full of people who knew that life was not fair. And that unfairness sometimes led them to question whether God was fair as well. Do you think Job thought life was fair? God was fair as he reeled from one disaster to another? Do you think young Jeremiah thought God was fair? We heard him a few Sundays ago declare, you duped me, O Lord, and I allowed myself to be duped. The prophet Habakkuk, how long do I cry for help and you don't even hear me? What about our mother in faith, Sarah? You want us to go where? At this age? I'll bear what? Do you think Joseph found his brothers fair when they sold him into slavery? Ruth marries a man, he dies young, and she's left in an alien land. Sisters and brothers, our salvation story is filled with people who experienced the unfairness of life and sometimes thought that unfairness was to be found also in our God. But there is a big difference between saying life isn't fair, it most certainly isn't, and God isn't fair. It's true, God is not fair, but God is better than fair. God is generous beyond measure. God is rich in grace and mercy. God is full of compassion. The reality is our God doesn't owe us anything. On the contrary, we owe God everything, time, talent, treasure, our very lives, the gifts of our minds and bodies, the gift of those we love and who allow us to love them in return. All of it is a gift from God. As the text from Isaiah points out so beautifully today, God's justice doesn't work like ours. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not like our thoughts. And that's good news. Jesus tells us this morning in this marvelous parable, not to begrudge God's goodness, God's mercy to those that we find wanting. Because the truth is, at some point in each of our lives, we receive from our God abundant grace, mercy, and more love than we ever merit. When someone hurts me, I want a God who is just. But when I'm the offender, I want a God who is forgiving and generous. It is true. Life isn't fair. It is true. Our God's not fair either. But it is soul-saving, life-affirming good news that our God is better than fair. Our God is rich in love and compassion. And I'm grateful. I'd rather have a God who is love than a God who is fair. That was Manuel Williams for Breach. After the break, we'll hear how Manuel makes oft-heard parables relevant and how he invites his congregation into full participation in the gospel story.
Welcome back to Preach Manual. Life isn't fair. It's an experience we've all had, but it sounds to me as though it's something that really is born of your own experience, just from the litany of examples that you gave. How do you make that decision as a preacher to preach from your own life experience or not? I think that decision is almost foundational. And as a person who for the last year and a half, two years has been, as you alluded to, seriously studying the art and the science, the craft and the theology of preaching, I hear over and over again in the scholars that I read, in the cohort that I study with, in my own experience that the preacher, he or she is first and fundamentally a believer. And as they exegete a text, as they look at the situation in their own lives, in the lives of the faith community that they are serving, I think they're compelled to do so through the lens of their own spirituality, through their own experience. I had the great privilege of never having a man formally teach me preaching when I was a master's of divinity student. I had the great sister Joan Delaplane and Adrian Dominican, who was the first Catholic woman, I think, to be president of the American Academy of Homileticians. And I also had servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman, at the Institute for Black Catholic Studies in Xavier University in New Orleans, the other professor of preaching. And what both of these great women stressed is you have the privilege each and every Sunday of standing before the people of God. And they would make it personal and say, we don't get that privilege easily. We have to look for venues or for opportunities. And so never step into that preaching moment unprepared. And that doesn't mean you have to have a full script or a complete text. But it means you have struggles, you have entered into those texts, and you have sought to see, what does it say to me? What might it say to my people today, as well as what it might have said to the original audiences millennia ago? And so I think you just foundationally, we have to look at these texts from our own lived experience. You know, our editor-in-chief, Father Sam Sawyer, said this on the podcast earlier on, preaching is believing out loud. Now, I'm sure that he's picked this up from some of the great scholars, but it's certainly the thing that he was taught that stays with him. And so to hear that preaching is really about fundamentally the witness of the believer before it is about anything else. Indeed. But also few can boast having the great servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman, <laughs> as their preaching teacher. I'm not going to let you get away without giving us a little bit more. What was that like? What did you learn from her above all about the craft? It was transformative. I think one of the first things I learned is because Thea's doctorate was in semantics and linguistics. And so she had a very, one might say, academic and scholarly approach to the importance of words and the power of words. But when you couple that training with her complete appreciation for and being rooted in the African-American oral tradition, especially that of the Deep South, she had this marvelous ability to encourage us. And so I can remember one particular class where some poor cleric got up to preach and started, and it was just deadening from almost the first word. And Thea said, stop, stop, stop right there. And she said, now, class, what can we do to help our brother in this event? And she could be brutally honest. But she did so with such an air of care 
and concern, and you knew it was authentic. She wanted us, as she and Joan both said, you have this privilege of preaching. You have to understand how critically important it is for the lives of faith, for the people that you're serving. And so she was a master teacher, master teacher. You've had the privilege of serving a community for 33 years, which also means you've probably had a time where you've heard some pretty devastating critiques yourself about preaching. What has that taught you, or how has that made you a better preacher? I think when you have gone through the ABC cycle 10 or 11 times, my human tendency is to say, I think I've said pretty much everything I need to say to these folks. Now, at Lord, as I approach these texts this week, what is there new for what life has changed? I've certainly changed. The congregation has changed. I had my administrative assistant run this parish software device the other month that shows the ages of all of our people between 65 and 100. Well, there are about 70 people that fall into that bracket in a parish community of about 300 registered family units. And so that says to me, even though I've gone through this cycle 10 or 11 times, we've preached all the gospel passages, so much has changed in the lives of these folks that even a text that I preached 15 years ago or 20 years ago has a possibility of saying something new, which is basically the story of the Christian text anyway. You know, people, we have been reading these gospels for millennia. What do they have to say in 2023 that they didn't say in 1033? Ever wonderful, ever new. And so it's become a challenge for me to trust the Spirit and to trust that as I have changed and as the community has changed, that this word still has something powerful to say. One of the best critiques I ever got from now one of my uh, parishioners, who's now of happy memory, who herself was an English teacher. She came to me one Sunday and she said, Father, I want you to understand this. And I said, what do you want me to understand, Eddie Marie? And she said, in most of your homilies, there's not an extra word, not an extra word. But today you had all kind of fluff. (laughs) And I thought, this is great. First of all, they're listening. (laughs) Second, they're listening critically. And then thirdly, I have earned enough trust and repute that they feel comfortable to come and share their honest assessments. And so I've learned that these 33 years. Let's talk about that. You know, Pope Francis is known for asking for homilies to be briefer, to the point. You're in a black community. I myself am from a context in South Africa where preaching must go on for at least 20 minutes for people to feel like they've come to Mass on a Sunday. What do you think sometimes can make the difference between not an extra word and fluff? Fluff, yeah. Well, I understand very well what Pope Francis is saying, because I do get to hear and travel a bit. And in the past few summers, I have taught courses on African-American preaching at the Institute for Black Catholic Studies at Xavier. And I think the Pope is right that in most situations, especially in in the larger church, given the exigencies of multiple masses and parking lots and also the culture of the people, when people have not grown up in a very O-R-A-L culture or a very A-U-R-A-L culture, 
that probably eight to 10 minutes is about as much as what most people can stand. But that's not the culture in which I find myself preaching these 33 years. And so I tend to be perhaps 15 to 20 to 22 minutes. And I think the difference is, and what Mrs. Turner said to me that Sunday is, even with that expanded length of time, narrative preaching, and that is what I believe most preaching to be deeply rooted as, narration, sacred storytelling, that can be done in a way that even in that expanded time period is still tight, is still concise, is still applicable to what people experience or what the Spirit has led me to see in the text or what I've seen in the lives of the local community or the country, etc. Let's switch course a little bit. I, You know, it's not every day that we have a great preacher and a preaching scholar in our midst. Trying to be a preaching scholar. <laughs> Trying to be a preaching scholar, but you've certainly started on that course. And I want you to take the homily that you've presented today and maybe just more didactically go through it and sort of tell us what you were thinking step by step. How did you start and how did you develop that and where did you end? I started with a parable. You know, I put myself kind of in an Ignatian method. I imagined myself in that vineyard having worked in the heat of the day. I spent some of my most formative summers with great-grandparents who were still farmers in West Alabama and even as a child would sometimes allow me to go into the cotton fields with my little sack on my back to help try and pick the cotton. And I might get three or four ounces by the end of the day and they had, you know, 20 pounds or whatever. But that image of the burden, the heat of the day spoke to my own lived experience. And so I began focusing on that and then imagining how I would have felt if I had been that person in that vineyard. And these folks arrive, and when it comes time to be paid, like my great-grandparents were at the end of the day, if it was land they didn't own, if they were picking cotton for another landowner, I can imagine how they would have felt if someone who'd come in an hour before the pay period was getting the same wage that they had gotten, and they'd been there since 7 o'clock that morning. And so I wanted to move from that experience to looking at situations in people's lives, illness, what happens in their jobs. My community is composed of a lot of retired educators, retired teachers. And so when I made the allusion to educational institutions where others have gotten tenure and others have not, I think, hmm, I know some folks for whom this will be real. Certainly across families and circumstances, the experience of illness folks who have tried to take care of their health and find themselves battling with horrible prognoses, and other folks who seem to be, you know, living the life of Riley, as the expression goes, and who are not experiencing anything but robust health. And so I moved from that kind of apprehension of what my own personal experience to be to broaden it, but still on the same theme of how might the people in this community have experienced that same sense of unfairness. You've taught a course on anti-racist preaching, and you go around the country, you know, teaching about African-American spirituality, preaching, the history of the African-American church. What do you think we need to know in the United States particularly, but beyond the U.S. as well, about the importance of preaching in the African-American context? What is the most important thing for you? I think some of the modalities 
and typical components of African-American preaching need not be limited to just people of color or people of African-American descent. And if other preachers of whatever ethnicities can appropriately use some of those modalities, it can allow them to say and do some things that if they were to say them normally outside of those modalities might not be well received. Father uh, Maurice Nutt, Father Greg Hiley, who are both on the faculty at Aquinas Institute, and Dr. Deborah Wilhelm, who's also on the faculty there, but primarily at Loyola, have just co-edited a book which will be published in a few weeks by Orbis, where myself and 13 other preachers of various backgrounds and Christian traditions were asked to write a chapter on anti-racism preaching, preaching against racism. And somehow, I don't know if it was by design or it was just serendipity, I ended up with the last chapter and in the section called Stories and Narratives. And my assertion in that chapter was, in African-American sacred song across the spectrum, the spirituals, gospel, the hymns of some of the Protestant Black churches, that we have a resource that any preacher can use You can use songs sometimes to say things that you couldn't just outright say. And so I was particularly thinking of ways that the corpus of African-American sacred song could be used by non-African-American preachers to say some hard things to get people to inductively think, you know, without wagging a finger or without accusing them, without blatantly saying, you got to give up your racism or you got to be more inclusive. You got to be more understanding of people of various cultures and backgrounds and orientations, et cetera. And so I'm convinced that Black preaching, African-American preaching, especially in our Catholic context, can be an arrow in the quiver to help us begin ecclesial conversations, but even a broader conversations of what does it mean for us to be believers? Three of the things I've heard you say throughout this about preaching, you know, you've said preaching needs to be born of personal experience. We need to focus much more on the narrative and that we need to be more inductive, you know, lead people into making the connections, but not to make the connections for them. I wonder, you're some years now into your preaching study. Everybody has to come up with a thesis about preaching. <laughs> What do you think is the core, if I can be so bold as to ask you to say, you know, for you, what is the core of preaching and what you are hoping to convey from your scholarship? Wow. That is a wonderful question, Ricardo, and one that probably deserves a lot more thought than what will flow from my immediate answer. I think, in essence, what I think preaching is It's telling the old, old story and inviting the hearers to be participants in that story and not just hearers. Telling the old, old story, the sacred text, the good news, the unconditional love of God revealed most clearly in Christ Jesus, but inviting them to be participants in that story and not just hearers of it. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I hope that we will have the opportunity to talk to you again. Thank you so much for coming on Preach. 
thank you all for the kind invitation and for all the wonderful work that y'all do through America Media. Thank you for listening to Preach. You can find the readings and a link to the transcript for the homily in our show notes. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Compelling Preaching Initiative, a project of Lilly Endowment, Inc. Preach is produced by me and Maggie Van Dorn. Frank Tewson is our audio engineer. He also designed the theme score and composed original music for the podcast. Sebastian Gomes is our executive producer. We recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio in New York City with production assistance from Kevin Christopher Robles, Christine Lenahan, and Delaney Coyne. If you've heard a great homily recently or know a great preacher you'd like to recommend for this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Just click the link in the show notes. You can also follow me on X, formerly Twitter, at RickDSSJ. That's R-I-C-D-S-S-J. And before we go, did you know that America Media can deliver a new scripture reflection to your inbox every day? If you're already a digital subscriber, you can probably find them in your inbox. If not, become a digital subscriber today for just $5.99 a month. It's the best way to support our work here on Preach. Just visit the link in the show notes. For America Media, I'm Ricardo De Silva. Until next time, keep preaching the good news. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.